From the world to your ears, welcome to Yakin with Yassian, a podcast about music and its business. Featuring your host, Dan Yassian. I am here to uh, introduce to you the, maybe you've already heard his name, you probably have, the great Alexander Zanchek. He is a musical icon. And he is a flutist or flautist, whichever you prefer. Oh, well, that's a good question. I can answer that for you. What is it? Uh, well, the difference between a flutist and a flautist yeah. is $20 an hour. <laughs> oh, no, my they're God. both correct. Are they? Okay. Yeah, that's the only flute joke I have. They are both correct. Okay. Flutist. Most professional flute players call themselves flutist. Uh-huh. Flauto is is pretty much in the classical world. Flauto transversal. Francois from French. Trans, yes. Uh, you know, transverse flaut, yes. flute. Yeah. And so, so they're both correct. Okay. Well, I, right. One sounds very bourgeois to me, a flautist. Well, I think it's great. Uh, he is also a musical festival organizer. I, is that right? Yeah, artistic director. Oh, correct. And a performer, a showman, working with the who's who of a lot of the greats from the jazz world. And uh, we're here to talk about his latest album, his 13th album. Oh, you've done your homework. Yes, which is uh, the first one you've done in 10 years 10 now. years, yes. And uh, it's it's a wonderful, remarkable piece of work, I Bridget, have to say. I had a lot of fun doing it. It's hot off the press. It was just dropped, correct? Yes, last Friday. Last Friday. Last Friday. Mr. Zanchek hails from Canada, from Windsor. Windsor, Ontario. He is known in Canada, but also in the U.S., and he has been such an accomplished player, having started in rock and roll, which a lot of people don't know about, but then mm-hmm. traversing over to jazz. So you have so much to say. There's so much to talk about here. So uh, rather than look at this thing. That was good, though. You didn't say one thing that wasn't true. You <laughs> That's didn't. good. Because usually in these, these interviews, days. Yeah, in these days. They don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Of course. That's, that's all true. But yeah. I, I pre- it's good to be here. And I love the fact that you used the jazz word. And I, you know I'll debate that with you a little bit because uh, of course. I've never ever gone after that. But I, I'm flattered to be called a jazz musician. I think my music's more jazzy than jazz. But I have a real passion. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What does that mean, more jazzy than jazz? I think I think when you take so- interpretations of songs, right. uh, and it it's in some cases covers whether you do an arrangement of a of a big pop song. Right. Yes, there's some improvisation in my songs. I'm not really someone who has studied that great art form. I mean, I, I don't I don't have to tell you you're 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 a fan. Jazz is the greatest cultural export. It's America's classical it's music. It's America, yeah. You know, of course. And so. So I have so much respect for it. I did listen to all of the jazz greats. I love Jeremy Steig. I loved Herbie Mann. I got to know Herbie really well. I think Hubert Laws is brilliant, and the list goes on and on and on. And you've worked with a lot of these people. I did. I was lucky enough to work with them. But well, uh, Let's name drop for me, just because, you know, I get inspired by that kind of thing. Well, <laughs> it makes for good television <laughs> to mention people's famous people's names. No, I was very lucky. I mean, Herbie Mann, I mentioned, I... Uh, was a hero of mine who I became friends with and performed concerts with. Uh, certainly Bob James, who was a big hero of mine. When I heard his music while a classical music student at the University of Windsor, right. what I loved about his music was that there were classical details in him. You look at Bob James 1 
and Bob James is doing Night on Ball Mountain by Mussorgsky. Right. You listen to his early records and you hear the classical overtones of the great flute player, Hubert Laws, who, by the way, studied at, at Juilliard. Mm. And so nothing new about classical and jazz getting together. Herbie Hancock studied classical music. Keith Jarrett studied classical music. Chick Corea studied classical music. So, so I was always influenced by, by all of that. Right. So I think what wound up into my music along with the rock and roll guitar sensibilities I had, because all of my references harmonically early on before I studied were thinking about the guitar fretboard. You know, if I saw an A chord on a chart, I could see that A chord on my guitar, and I knew I had an A and a C sharp and an E. I knew that. Right. Know? That was my reference early on, and I kind of created my own sort of way of improvising that really was my own. I couldn't really wander into two sophisticated chord changes. Like, I'm not someone that can take the flute out and just start playing a variety of solos through the chord changes for giant steps. That's just not what I do. I'm capable of memorizing one and fooling everybody, which a lot of jazz musicians do. Well, yes, they do. But I respect jazz. I love it. I think my music gets jazzy. I think it's funky. I think it's R&B-ish. Mm -hmm. I think I have pop sensibilities. I think my classical studying gave me a nice enough tone and technique that I can, I can move through pretty much any genre and pretty much hang in there. I mean, I'm a big... Jethro Tull fan. I love Ian Anderson. I, I love that that wonderful flute solo in Chicago's Color My World. Oh, uh, right, right. I loved Stephen Sondheim's music. Right. You right. know, so my tastes have always been that eclectic. But you know, do you pick up the guitar at all anymore? I do. You do. I do. And so are you still a fan of rock and roll? Love rock and roll. Uh, I'm a big fan. I'm going to sound like my dad uh, because I'm sure he had his favorites. I was very lucky to come up through a great era. I was at the Grandy Ballroom always. Oh my. And I saw everybody there. Uncle Russ, right? Uncle Russ. And and I'm there and there's Chicago Transit Authority. There's Blood, Sweat and Tears the first week that David wow. Clayton Thomas joined the band. Oh my. There's The Who. There's Blind Faith. There's MC5. So I was very lucky to come through that while a guitar player and um, studied a little bit of guitar. I started the guitar when I was eight. Wow. Took lessons, but never really... Never really got serious about music, but, you know, all of it for all of us, you know, it's just part of who we become. Uh, so mostly ear, mostly reading, a combination thereof? Uh, early on, mostly ear, bar bands. Of course, I'm, I'm old enough that it was before the Beatles. So before the Beatles, who was I listening to? I loved the Ventures. Mm -hmm. I loved the Shadows. I love the instrumental bands. I love Walk, Don't Run. I love Pipeline. Right. I also love the Everly Brothers. Uh, <laughs> so it's pretty uh, varied, uh, yeah, the whole yeah. thing. Is. And then when the Beatles came along, um, I'm in grade seven. Mm. And I will, I will tell you a story that will, if I ever write a book or anyone writes one for me, <laughs> this will be the worst prediction that Alexander Zondrick ever made in his entire career. Which is? The Beatles were on Ed Sullivan Show. Correct. And I was already playing guitar and playing at school at the assemblies, and everyone knew that that's that little Alex kid who plays the guitar. Uh -huh. And I would get up in front of the whole school, and I would play, you know, uh, I don't know if you remember the Shadows. They were a great instrumental oh, band yeah. from England. Yeah, of course, yeah. yes. And I would play these songs, and everyone said, hey, this kid's pretty good. Yeah. So needless to say, when the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan Show and created the craze that they did, mm -hmm. The next day, I'm at Dougal Avenue School, 
Mr. Ramsey's music class. <laughs> I walk in, and of course, Mr. Ramsey looks at me and says, so Alex, what did you think of the Beatles last night? And me being jealous, of course, of the Beatles, and not being smart enough to just, if you can't say anything good, don't say anything at all. Right, yeah, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> I looked at Mr. Ramsey in that classroom, and Dan, I made the worst prediction I've ever made. I said to everybody, Mr. Ramsey, they're not going anywhere. Yeah. That's what I say. But, you know, we've all, as musicians, done that from one time or another. I mean, I, I've had those same experiences. Yeah. And then, of course, you're reading Crow. But <laughs> well, uh, we all make judgments, and that's what we do as yeah, musicians yeah, yeah. Uh, all the time. So, yeah. But they did become an influence, though, Dan. I mean, in as much as we have that little scenario there, right? Uh, the bar band started, uh, or the club, the, the high school bands, bar bands. Started. I started playing in bars when I was 15. Yeah. But mainly the early influences, though, for me, luckily, uh, you know, you get all of that little early stuff. I learned how to read a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frank Hanneke, my first music teacher, whose son happens to be my dentist, but uh, <laughs> sweetest man in the world. And uh, I learned from those little early songbooks a lot of songs that later on I discovered were famous show songs. You know, Camptown Ladies, Sing This Song, Do Down, you know, do that. Uh, all of those songs that were really classic songs. I even learned Hank Williams songs, not knowing, you know, because they were in these little books. Right. But... Um, Sooner than later, because of Windsor being so close to Detroit, I started to get attached in a big way to uh, uh, R&B music, to rhythm and blues music. And I started to play with uh, local R&B bands uh, and and started, next thing you know, I'm 15 years old and I'm playing in bars uh, with a band called The Crescents. And I'm playing Chuck Jackson and I'm playing Sam Cooke and I'm doing The Platters and I'm learning like... Again, still not realizing the degree of depth that these songs had. They were just songs we were hearing. Right. So when you're playing My Prayer and you're playing uh, Heavenly Shades of Night or called Twilight Time <laughs> and you're playing... Uh, I didn't know. I was just this little... This kid who loved R&B. But my inclination is to think that when you say jazz and then not so much jazz... Yeah. Is, you like melodies, right? I mean, that's, melodies big time. That's big time with you. Big time. Yes. So the improv thing is good, but you still want to get home base in melodic. Yeah. Yes, very right? much so. Is that? I, I, and, and you bring up a great point that that even the great jazz musicians realized that the power was was in the melody. I mean, what we hear a lot of with young jazz musicians is let's get this melody over with so we can start playing them <laughs> solos. <laughs> Right? Uh, and meanwhile, a, yes. And meanwhile, when you hear a melody, and I don't care if it's, if it's, uh, I mean, just listen to Sarah Vaughn sing Send in the Clowns. Oh, my. Yeah. You know, when you listen to those great melodies, Miles Davis doing Summertime, uh, uh, Sarah doing Rainy Days and Mondays by right. the Carpenters. Right. So it's the great melodies. I, I think of the flute as the closest instrument to the human voice, and I really loved melody. That's why that first album that I made in right. 1978. Yes, it has Blue Bossa on it, mm-hmm. which is a jazz standard. Of course. And it has Antonio Carlos Joe Beam's Wave. Right. And it has a great song by Jerry Nywood called Joy. But what else does it have? With a little help from my friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, We're All Alone. Send in the clowns. Mm-hmm. Uh, those were my tastes. But these are things that I will often argue with some of our uh, jazz friends whom you know. Is it a requirement that we put 5,000 notes into one bar? Yeah. And that's, 
I think a real big problem when it comes to being able to sell yourself as a really good musician because yeah. there is the composer and this guy wrote these notes. He So why do you want to mangle the whole thing from one end to the other? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a great point. It's a great point. Mm. I, I think if you have a real sound and a real tone and beautiful vibrato and a real technique, yeah, I totally admire the guys. Look, Charlie Parker could play a million miles oh, an hour. Well, yeah, I know. And I, I admire all that. I, right. I truly do. But I also admire Chet Baker just playing a melody. Right. I also admire a crossover artist like Chuck Mangione, who came from so many different disciplines, including playing with Art Blakey. Right. To to playing to to writing a beautiful song like. Uh, Writing Bellavia. Yeah. Gorgeous, gorgeous tune. You have a uh, beautiful tone, by the way. Gorgeous song. I've recorded it twice. I love yeah, it so much. Right. But so. Um, In doing these concerts, these festivals, you had Mangione on a festival. Didn't oh, I you? loved it. I had, him, I had him many times. I'm yeah. a huge Chuck Mangione fan. I loved the way he brought his music to symphony orchestras. I love that we crossed over. I, now, there's a guy that could play some serious bebop, yeah. you know, if you wanted to. Um, the melody, you know, uh, I can remember. Uh, it was Bob James. I, I, Bob James, who obviously is just this brilliant jazz artist, right. who really can play a melody. If you right. look at all his first hit, uh, "Feel Like Making Love," that great song that, right. that that Roberta Flack recorded, those beautiful melodies from Taxi, and and uh, not that I want to get too adult on us, but he had a really <laughs> sweet, fun expression because he did believe in the melody, and then. Then went and, off. And, and then, yes. Then uh, did his thing. And that was that uh, you can't get laid without a melody. <laughs> and so, so, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I I know that that's... Oh, that's great. I know it I is. I've never heard that put that well, way. Well, and it's, it's, but you know, it's it's that, Paul Desmond, could that guy play a melody? Mm, oh, my, my, yeah. And one of my favorites, yeah, I gotta yeah. say. And laid back great. and never, and it's never about, and I and I mean this in my world too, it's never about trying to impress people, but trying to touch them. Right. And I think what happens with a lot of people, virtuosity does impress people. In some cases, it's if it's virtuosity without the ability to play that melody, right. uh, and, then, and then you have an audience that's not always educated necessarily. Uh, so I can pull up one of my, if you liked, you can't get laid without a melody. Well, you'll like BBB, bullshit baffles brains. Uh, so, <laughs> so, you know, you know, it takes all of that, you know, right. it takes all of that. That's, that's but I'm telling you, when I hear Chet Baker play Autumn Leaves, right. I'm totally comfortable with, first of all, the way he plays the melody is killer. Right. And then I'm more than happy to steal his solo. Why not? Yeah. They and say so, steal from the best, right? And here's, and here's the cool thing about it. By setting myself up on screen in front of this camera and saying to people, folks, yeah, maybe my music is jazzy, but I really don't consider myself, and I don't. I'm not saying it to be humble, to be really a jazz artist, because I know what kind of commitment that is. I know what the commitment was to the classical music that I play. Right. And so what it does is it gets me off the hook. So if I want to play, in one of my songs, uh, for example, um, "River Raisin Nights," I play a solo.
Okay, that's my solo in it. That's well, great. Can I, can I say something to you? Yeah. I got that totally memorized. <laughs> really? That's memorized. Now, do I, do I improvise solos? Yes, I do. But what I love doing is taking sections of songs and totally memorizing them so that when people hear me, they get a mixture of open solos, but also that. Now, what makes that solo special is because I... Now, I did record it on the record. Right. And I, I manufactured it on the record. Mm -hmm. I composed it on the record. And then what you can do after you've memorized it, and what I do, and I don't mean... Don't have to take my advice. Now I can have the guitar player play that same solo with me. There you go. Why? Because it's written out. And so it gives the song, you know... A beef. So, yeah. And it, it, it for an audience that's not necessarily a jazz audience... There's 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 structure to it, right? Because you know the argument with civilians when it comes to jazz that is very improvised, which I admire so much, is that it they just don't get it. Yeah, but as humans, we, we we like symmetry as as humans yeah. too. I mean, yeah. there's nothing like a marching band that's stepping in time together. Yes, as opposed to all scattered all over the field. Wow. You know, while you're playing the flute, I was thinking about uh, Taxi. Can you just give us a little well, bit of Taxi? Well, I mean. Let me just say, you talk about a great song and great writing abilities. It's great, yeah. And I don't want to say that nobody writes like that anymore, but yeah. when I listen to our newer version of that world, which now they call the smooth jazz world, right? but if you go back to those early guys that crossed over and started to play instrumental music that, that touched a broader audience, and that includes Chuck Mangione right. and Bob James and Earl Clue and George Benson, uh, who writes songs like Taxi, like Feel So Good, like Bella Via. Who's doing that these days? Yeah, right. And then if you take Taxi, there's five songs in Taxi. There's yeah. this beautiful introduction. You have that. Yeah. Then you have... Oh. <laughs> then you have it's incredible oh that is i mean who and that's bob james that's yeah. the magic of someone and the, i and i and listening to you right now i heard a little bit of a growl coming from your flutter throat, tongue a yes. flutter tongue uh, can you do a little flutter tongue again for us so that we know well, as, as, as layman out there what a flutter tongue so, is? Okay, so you want to turn this into a little workshop? No, I no. get it. <laughs> okay. I get it. Well, no, but part of my thing, if I have a unique sound right. and what we all thrive for, right. what we all strive for, mm -hmm. uh, it's really to be able, if someone hears you on the radio or on a record, they go, oh, well, that's, that's Alexander Zonjic. Right. We... You know, you had Walter White do a show like this. Right. I know Walter White when I hear Walter White. Right, right. I know Freddie Hubbard when I hear Freddie Hubbard. Right. I know Kirk Whalen when I hear that tenor sax sound. Mm -hmm. You know, so for me, my classical training gave me uh, techniques that most flute players who also play saxophone, those guys we call doublers, who right. I totally respect, mm -hmm. uh, they don't articulate. You know, mm -hmm. so so when I look at my little bag of tricks, right. yes, I got the flutter tongue in. And I got, I got triple tongue. I got all of that stuff. Right, right, uh, right. And right. I'm slurring octaves and I'm doing all that. And then when you bring that into your repertoire, you got this bag of tricks. And it gives the flute, and for people that are that are very one-dimensional, you know, right. a lot of people think the, whole, the flute is always the birds in the orchestra. 
you know. Uh, but in the right hands, right. with with you got to have chops. Right. You got to practice. You got to be able to articulate because again, not a lot of the doublers. That's just some telemon that I stole. But by the way, you've you've also been taught classically. And I was, yes. And yes. how long did that classical training go on? It went on for a long time. Do I tell the story now? Yes, yes, please. The nine dollar flute story. Yes, please. You know what I love about telling the story is it's been told so many times. Yeah. That sometimes Dan, I'll be on a talk show mm. where people have heard the story so many times that they'll look at me and go, "Is that the five dollar flute?" As if nine wasn't cheap <laughs> enough. Uh, uh, uh. Or they'll say, "Is that the flute you stole?" Oh you know, my, yeah. Uh, the real story is I'm the rock and roll guitar player. I come home to Windsor to visit my parents. Right. I'm walking around. I got the big fro. Some people know me as the guy who went to Toronto and is, you know, kind of having a rock and roll career. Right. I mean, I never became famous. It's not like I didn't join the guess who, you know, but... Um, well, you are famous. Come on. I mean, but whatever. Is within that, reason. Yeah, yeah. You know, okay. But uh, a guy literally on the street, like a street guy who would normally sell you a watch yeah. or a ring... Or drugs, for that matter. Yeah, right. Recognized me and came over to me and said, aren't you the guitar player? I goes, I am. And he says, would you like to buy a flute? That's literally how it happened. And he did, in fact, have a hot flute. It was an Armstrong 104, cheap flute, but loved the way it looked in the case. And I'm looking at it, and I'm kind of mesmerized by it. And I'm thinking about Jethro Tull at the time. I'm going, wow, flute, you know. And then... Uh, I said, how much do you want? He goes, 50 bucks. You can have it for 50 bucks. He goes, I've only got $9. He goes, I'll take it. And that's how it started. But then what happened was I discovered this total passion for wanting to learn how to play it. I don't have a lot of natural ability. I don't have perfect pitch. I was never a natural. Could have fooled me. Well, no, no, it's not. And I appreciate that. But if I was given a gift, it really is the passion to want to learn this instrument. Love music. Mm -hmm. Grew to love the Beatles. Loved Roy Orbison. Loved all the arms. Loved Motown. Yeah. Loved all of it. Loved James Brown. The, the list just goes on. And so uh, I did not have, I put that thing together, couldn't get a note out of it. Struggled. I bought a Rubank Elementary book. I started to teach myself. Oh, Rubank, of course. Yeah. Yeah. You know the Rubanks. Yeah. Of course, you're a clinic. Yeah. Right. So I'm learning little scales and struggling I knew a little bit of music from my guitar lessons but I wasn't moving ahead as quick as I would like still playing in the rock band and I got this flute that I've become infatuated with mm -hmm. next thing you know friends of mine very good musicians say hey you know there's a new you know there's a new music program at the University of Windsor it's only a couple of years old uh, they're auditioning why don't you go and audition and I go I can't go audition for classical studies at a university I mean, the prerequisite for classical studies is not, I bought a flute off a guy on the street eight months ago. Right, you know? right. And, and I did go down. And I brought the flute and I brought the elementary book. And I walked in there and all these professors who eventually I became friends with, who I, I really have so much respect for, these are PhDs and real professors, you know. Mm -hmm. Paul McIntyre, Greg Butler, all these really accomplished guys. Imra Rosnyai, this great classical oh, clarinetist. Yeah, you know? right, I know. And so I... Um, I stand up in front of them and I play these little studies and they're all kind of looking at me, a little confused. Imra says to me, can you play any scales? And I go, <laughs> I think I can, you know. He asked me to play a D major scale. Uh -huh. I struggle through it, you know. Luckily, I know there's two sharps in it. All right. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, here comes one of those, you know, 
really chance things, you know, where one guy in particular, the clarinet guy, just heard something, so, you know. And I think what they did see, which maybe you're seeing, maybe the camera's seeing, I don't like doing this stuff. I love doing it. And I have a real passion for it. And I think they saw that. And I, I basically said, look, I just want to learn how to play this instrument. And I think that this process of studying classical music is a way for me to speed up the process. Because on my own, it's just, it's just not going to happen. You're listening to Yakin' with Yesian. Visit danyesian.com and sign up for the newsletter to receive all the latest content, including vlogs, podcasts, and all things related to Dan's feature work and Armenian trilogy. Now back to the conversation. You've worked with a lot of yes. the greats. And they've inspired you as they oh, would need to move on to Absolutely. doing yeah. other things and exploring yourself as a musician. No right? question. No question. Uh, so who are some of those names? Well, right? I mentioned Irv Monroe. Yes. Uh, who, in the classical world, wow, I mean, how could you not look up to That's, him? Yeah, uh, that absolutely. was an amazing Terrific. experience. Yeah. Uh, imagine uh, making my early records and finally getting the opportunity to play at Baker's. Yeah. And back then, when you got a gig at Baker's, you might you might follow that was Mecca. I mean, yeah, you might follow Baker. You might follow Dizzy Gillespie in there. Yeah. So right. for me, it was a big gig. I get the gig, and the first weekend that I ever played there, and Clarence Baker was the sweetest man in the world. Oh, I remember. And that. my friend Earl Clue is in the crowd, who I was a huge fan of. All right. And next thing you know, uh, Bob James is playing at the Royal Oak Music Theater. Right. It's in November of 1981, and I'm playing in there, and I'm so excited. I can't remember my birthday. How are you doing this? Well, okay, I, never. Well, I remember those things. Okay. <laughs> And uh, I'm, I get my chance to play at Baker's. I'm in there with my band. And um, uh, do you remember Jerry Varga, an of course, agent? sure. Okay. Jerry Varga worked for L'Oreal Ross Entertainment. And Jerry Varga knew Bob James's manager, Peter He Paul. used to hire us for a... Well, never mind. Well, I'm sure. Not me. That's why okay. I brought it up. Okay. Why I brought it. So Jerry Varga uh, knows Peter Paul, Bob James's manager. Bob James, who I just totally loved. Mm -hmm. And I learned all of his songs. I mean, here's Taxi. Here's... Uh, Westchester lady. Here's there's uh, where the wind blows free. Right, right. I love this guy. I yeah. love this guy. And so, and I love this class. His Farindole, You know that when he did his Bizet. I knew all, I was killed. So yeah. um, I'm at Baker's. Jerry Varga is at the Royal Oak Music Theater watching Bob James because he knows Bob James's manager. And at the end of that show, he says to Bob James. Bob, I know you don't do this, but would you mind coming to a club tonight? There's somebody I want you to hear. I think you really like this kid. Oh, wow. You know? So he talks Bob James into coming to Baker's Keyboard Lounge on a Sunday night. How beautiful is that? And I'm up there playing, and I look into those mirrors in Baker's, yeah. and I see a guy that looks like Bob James. I go, I think that's Bob James. And I'm like, so all of a sudden, I start playing every Bob James song I know. <laughs> and we're having, and I am like so inspired by the fact that he's in the room. Yeah. And Earl Clue happened to be there, too. And I finished the first set, and he comes up to me and says, uh, so nice to meet you. you know, I love that. I loved all those. Thanks for playing those Bob James songs. I've been hearing a lot about you. I'm like totally blown away by right. this of nature sure. of it. Yeah. And I go over and I sit down at a table with him, and Earl Clue comes over. At one point, we all go back up and play. Yeah. But at that point, he kind of looks at me, and he says, you know, uh, Boy, I really enjoyed that. You know, he says, you know, I love flute. You know, Hubert Laws is on, on a lot of my early records on CTI. He says, you know, coming up this spring, I got a big tour coming up. I got all these great people in the band. And I've got Harvey Mason and I've got Gary King. And, 
and we're going to be we're going to be playing on the on the west coast we're going to go to asia we're going to play japan we're going to play the philippines we're going to come back we're going to play carnegie hall would you like to join the band oh my gosh yeah so so needless to say it took me three days to get oh back. my gosh yeah. yeah and i i actually spent weeks thinking he made a mistake and in the back of my brain <laughs> in the back of my brain i i figured if i just if i just go get them coffee if I just show up at the rehearsal, play a couple of songs, and I go, Mr. King, would you like some coffee? I was really that naive. You know, remember at that point, I started so late. Uh, you have no sense of where you are in your learning because you feel, you know what this is like. You can practice all you want. This is not a race we're ever going to win. No. We're just going to keep moving you the finish keep line. moving. Yeah. Right. And so I was so blown away by the, the, the notion of that. So Bob James, Earl Clue, without a doubt. Earl was a was a very big. I, I played the guitar. I mm -hmm. loved his guitar playing. Mm -hmm. Earl came to all of the clubs I used to play around here, Archibald's in Birmingham. And a very sweet guy, I have to say. Sweetest man in the world. Yeah. So inspired by his music, played on my Elegant Evening album in 1981. Wow. I said, "Would you play on my record?" He goes, "Sure." Then he played on my Romance with You CD. Then he played on my uh, Neon CD, my first Warner Brothers record. So there's Earl Clue. Right. Then there was Angela Bofield, who I loved. Uh, Amazing singer. I had a big. I had. Wait, an wait a minute. What? So what? What was that with Angela Bofield? What? What? She? You were on her album. You were. Well, no. It started out with Angela her? Bofield, where I loved her music. Again, going back to the flute and melodies, and the flute being the closest instrument to the human voice. If you yeah. if you remember her songs. She had a song. She had Angel of the Night. Right, right. Under the Moon. I loved her music. So it started with me recording Angel of the Night on my Elegant Evening album and it becoming a radio hit. Wow. And then a few years later, doing a gig with her. I she she wound up on my first Warner Brothers record. Yeah. And then I called up her agent and I said, I wanna and next thing you know, I was doing so I She's a great writer, great songwriter. Unfortunately, she's had a couple of strokes. She doesn't tour anymore. So yeah. Angela was one of those. Yeah. Then Kirk Whalem, the great tenor saxophone player, who I met while touring with Bob James, loved Kirk Whalem. Kirk Whalem yeah. produced my first two Warner Brothers records. Mm. So he was a huge influence. So you got Kirk Whalem, you got Bob James, you got Irv Monroe. You, you got had Earl. something with Dave Cause? Dave Cause, uh, Dave Cause, more of a um, more of a friend and collaborator. We we're we're more friends. Kenny G, different story. Uh, the Kenny G story is a great story. Which which is uh, yeah. Tell me about that. Well, my connection with Kenny was uh, I was a huge Jeff Lorber fan. Mm -hmm. Jeff is a big part of my stable now. He produced ten of the eleven tracks on my new record. On on uh, on the, the new pin, one, playing it, it forward. forward. Yeah yeah. Uh, so very lucky, Bob James. Jeff Lorber, uh, 1979, I get hired to be the opening act at a small theater in Chatham, Ontario for Jeff Lorber Fusion. Mm -hmm. And Jeff Lorber at that point had just hit. He had this hybrid great music. He had this kind of fusion. He stuffed these bluesy like... He had, that was yeah. 288. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeff just had a vibe. Yeah. He just had a vibe. So I get hired to open up for him. I go, wow, this is so cool. That's cool. I go to Chatham. 
I'm backstage warming up in the stairwell with, where we love to practice because we sound so good. And uh, <laughs> A lot of reverb there. A lot of reverb there. And uh, Jeff, I meet him, but he's, he's kind of aloof. Mm -hmm. Jeff is still developing his own career. This is 1979. But the guy that I totally hit it off with, he has this young sax player with him who plays flute. Right. And his name was Kenny Gorlick. And I meet oh, Kenny Gorlick, oh, and I say, hi, Kenny. And we start talking flute. He really loves my flute playing. We talk. And Kenny Gorlick and I become friends. Jeff, not so much then. I just knew him. Career moves on. I start touring with Bob James. I start making records. I start running into Jeff Lord around the country. Kenny Gorlick, around 1986-87, becomes Kenny G. He already made two records before he made Songbird, right. which was... And again, there's another guy, jazzy, not necessarily jazz. That guy's cadenzas and his virtuosity, to me, is more classical than it is jazz. Mm -hmm. They're mm -hmm. almost classical cadenzas. Right. You know, for the for the for people that don't know what a cadenza is, a cadenza is for all purposes a classical improvisation that happens to be written out. Yeah, just you know, happens to be written. Well, <laughs> you know, big violin concerto, orchestra stops, violin keeps playing. Right, of Big course. piano concerto. Yeah. So we hit it off great. Kenny and I are still very good friends. He's He played on my last CD on Doing the D. Mm. And obviously he went on. So Kenny G, uh, Dave Cause, I get along. I just interviewed Dave. Love Dave. Dave is a machine. Yeah, he is a machine. Cruises, radio shows. He's everywhere. I would put him and Kenny more in the instrumental pop category, right? You know, than anything else. Lorber, brilliant, mm -hmm. very lucky to know Lorber. Uh, famous band, Pieces of a Dream, James Lloyd, right? Uh, who's on my um, last few records, wrote a lot of great songs for me, including uh, the one that I played. <laughs> he wrote River Raisin Nights. He wrote Sweat. Big dance song for me. All of that. There's another guy. So, listen, answer, you're like a jukebox. This just yeah, it doesn't stop. I feel like David Syme, the human jukebox. <laughs> no, well, you know, it's it's fun to if the flute's there. You know, it's it's fun. No, to, no, no. I know, but you know, speaking of that, I mean, when we talk about this guy being a machine, Dave, Dave Goss, yeah. yes. That reminds me of you, really, because you're a performer. You're doing these festivals. Tell us about the festivals that you've been doing. You're an organizer. Yeah. You're putting all this stuff. To, how do you do that as a performer? And then you're doing this other thing. You know, I often tell people you could be in the music thing, but you have to be in the music business well, in order to succeed in this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you how know, do you do that? How Dan, you, you, do ask, that? you ask a great question, and it's one that young musicians more than ever need to embrace because the mechanisms that were in place for us many years ago, mm -hmm. and I was very lucky. I got at least the tail end of it. I worked really hard through the 80s. I signed record deals with Inner City, with Optimism. Finally got to the point where Warner Brothers signs me. Um, those mechanisms are gone. So to answer your question about all the things that I do, I'm barely doing them all. I'm spinning a lot of plates. I do drop the odd one. It's not easy. I, I don't know that I recommend it for everyone. A lot of it happened out of necessity. I do love all of that stuff. Why necessity? Explain that. Our industry changed. So this, this notion of signing a major record deal, getting a big advance, and you stay home and you practice and work on your art while people take care of your career. Right. Maybe that might still happen in the pop world. 
Maybe Bruno Mars has got those buffers and those machines. <laughs> Maybe Taylor Swift has them. But for us, um, we've all become entrepreneurs. I think most successful artists, all of us have some of those chops. For me... So you're self-contained, basically. Very self-contained. And it became... Remember, I don't play an instrument that's mainstream at all. And I, and again, this is going to sound like like a real humble comment to make, uh, but it's, it's not. What it is is that, uh, Dan, the flute's never been em embraced in the jazz or the pop jazz or the smooth jazz world or even the rock world on the same level as the saxophone, mm -hmm. you know. Right. The flute's way down on the totem pole. And so... When people put a band together, and you've played in bands, right. and everyone's sitting around the kitchen table, mm -hmm. we get, we got to get a bass player, we got to get a drummer, we got to get a guitar player. Mm -hmm. What's our business card going to look like? Nobody says during those band meetings, where are we going to find a flute player? <laughs> Nobody does. I'm sorry to be, I'm, it's, it's discourteous of me to be, but I mean, but you yes, know, nobody does that. Nobody, no, so, no, no, so, so how did how in the hell did you do it? So you have a you have a solo career or you have no career. It's got to be a solo career. Now you can play sessions, but how many of those are you going to do? But to play solo flute, you you need to start bringing all that other stuff into it. Uh, in as much as I was very lucky with with labels and everything, the flute. See in Detroit in particular, where people for the last my first record came out in 78, do the math, that's 42 years. Mm -hmm. So for the last at least 30 years, people know of a guy who plays the flute and seems to have a real profile. But this is not common. Right. You know, Herbie Mann pulled it off. Yeah. Hubert Laws to a great degree. Well, I'm only at four, you know. Yeah. So so it this was a really, it was a long shot. And the way to hedge my bets as I moved along, classical was cool. I was never, um, I never wanted to play in an orchestra as the flute player. I so admire those players. Yeah. It's such a big commitment they make. It is a big And commitment. if you look at Irv Monroe's, and even now if you look at Sharon Sparrow's and Jeff Zook's, these guys are so good. I didn't mind standing out in front and, you know, doing a... I didn't mind doing the Mozart D major flute concerto, <laughs> taking the bows and walking off, but I never wanted to sit in that chair and see James Galway's back. Wow. I, I, wanted, I was either going to stand there or I was going to sit in the crowd. And speaking of James Galway, I mean, come on. Yeah, I know. Yeah, if you think I pulled off something, <clears throat> bringing my style of music to whatever audience I have, but you know, we all find our own way. Uh, I always caution people. You know, I have my own he headset. I, I play wireless live using more or less a headset. Normally they go this way. I had to have it custom made this way so the flute could fit in there. Oh, right. And it's the same microphone that Justin Bieber, Janet Jackson, and Justin Timberlake use. It's right. all it is. Yeah. And it's it's wireless and it's hooked to the floor. You gotta create that for yourself. Right. No one I, I remember playing down in Mexico once in Monterey and a very wealthy guy who happened to play the flute, mm -hmm. Jesus Delgado, mm -hmm. comes to the show and he comes backstage. And he's so enamored by all these pedals and everything <laughs> that he wants to buy it all. He oh, says to me, oh my God. Alexander, can I buy all of this? And I go, Jesus, as much as I would love to take your money, <laughs> I really would. I said, I can't sell you this because it won't mean anything to you. I started with tape loops and, and all that. So, yeah. and if It's if like you, a suit of clothing, right? For yourself. It's something yes, that you work yes. with and you're and, accustomed to. And, and if you can't do it, Dan, in a natural way without look, you know, without looking down, It'll hamper your playing, right? And I'm I'm always cautious with young musicians that 
that they don't think that that's going to compensate for practicing. Oh, no. Right. Tell me about one more time before we leave the idea of these uh, festivals that you've put on. Yes. When did, when did you start that? Well, I, well, that's a very good question. I fell into it. It started out, uh, if, I, if I take my oldest one, and a lot of folks will relate to this because it's one of our best. Take Jazz on the River, Elizabeth Park in Trenton. Every year for 25 years, first weekend in August, Saturday and Sunday is Jazz on the River. Right. It started 25 years ago with a little showmobile, a couple speakers on sticks, and two bands, me and Straight Ahead. Wow. And we played in the rain, and, it, and there was a couple hundred people there, and I was just hired to play. Yeah. And then next thing you know, because I've always been generous with and transparent of any knowledge that I have. You can have every phone number I own. Ask me for my advice on something. I won't tell you it's the only way to do something, but I'll be glad to share it. And right. early on, what I did with a lot of folks, whether it's a Parks and Rec Department, right. or it's a Chamber of Commerce, or it's a Downtown Development Authority, or it's a Petaprin uh, uh, beverage company, if they were doing music events, I would offer up to them. I go, you know what? We had such a great experience, but can I make a recommendation? Really, as soon as you can, get rid of the showmobile and bring in a real stage. Mm. Can I make another recommendation? You got to bring the level of the sound up. You can get musicians to compromise their price. They hate compromising their experience. Oh my, totally true. Yeah. So then, totally true. Yeah. yeah. So I would offer up all of that advice, including even marketing advice, because I'm smart enough to know that somebody who runs a parks and rec department may not necessarily know all of this. Correct. And so, so what wound up happening without me soliciting it, they would go, well, if you're going to give us all this advice, why don't you do it? <laughs> there done. You, there you go. And so, you said, you said, done? You, done. You're ready to do it. Done. This has been Yakking with Yessian. Thanks for tuning in. As always, visit danyessian.com for all the latest content. See you soon.